0: Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast, Extra Edition. My name is Jamie Club. These shows are miscellaneous recordings that I thought you might like included in your regular podcast feed. They include video soundtracks, interviews, readings of my essays, material directly connected to my books and other audio work that should not be considered part of the regular podcast show. As with my regular show, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and if you enjoy the content, a positive rating and review on your preferred online sharing platform would be great to be received. Don't forget to check out the Club Chimera website at clubchimera.com for more free content and details on upcoming events. We can also be liked, followed and subscribed to on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello everyone, welcome to a very special edition of the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. This is Jamie Club, and I'm joined today by several guests which very fortunately agreed to offer their views on martial arts movie tropes, or more specifically, martial arts movie tropes that either annoy me or annoy them, depending on which person I ask. Now, this is quite an interesting subject, really, especially when you consider that this podcast is largely concerned with debunking a lot of martial arts nonsense and tackling uh, scepticism in martial arts, critical thinking in martial arts, casting the critical eye on martial arts training in general why would we go straight after martial arts fiction, martial arts drama? Indeed, there are a lot of people involved in the reality-based self-defense side of martial arts, and martial arts in general, who really don't like martial arts movies. They make a big point about not liking martial arts movies, and the things that they generally have a grudge with are the fight choreography, the fight scenes, if they don't believe it portrays the reality of real life violence, and then they get annoyed with it. However, the same people don't seem to have the same problems with when they watch a more general action movie or drama. They'll watch a movie like Star Wars, for example and have no problems with um, all the implausibilities, all the improbabilities and all the uh, scientific blunders that permeate those movies and they won't worry about watching a superhero movie or even uh, a gritty cop thriller or gritty gangster thriller or something where the fight scenes do not really depict reality indeed like the, the problems with reality-based self-defense there is a uh, there is a portrayal in movies that give you the idea of realism but don't really represent what we see in real life, what we see in documentary footage, what we see in CCTV footage. So to really have a grudge against uh, the unrealities of uh, martial arts violence on screen and in drama is really not very well thought out in the mind of critics of this nature. And drama in martial arts and martial arts drama goes back a very long way. I would argue that we have plays from antiquity that depicted battle scenes and recreated battle scenes and they were being recreated straight back to the very people who fought in these wars. In fact, often being recreated sometimes by the very soldiers and generals themselves. We have plenty of examples of this throughout ancient history, medieval history, Renaissance, and up to the present day. So we tend to forget that there is this close relationship. A lot of martial arts systems and styles, Wing Chun's the first one that comes to mind, shares a lot of its history in its development with connections to the world of stage, opera, the fact that a lot of martial artists were performers and made a living as performers as they did make a living as soldiers, as legitimate fighters. It's very, very easy just to be critical about uh, fantastical portrayals or dramatic portrayals of martial arts, of fights, and thinking that something that is just very, very far removed from the culture of realistic fighting. There's a very more involved and intertwined history there. Moving back onto to martial arts movies as a whole, uh, I wasn't a martial arts movie fan first uh, before I became a martial arts student. This is this is not the way for most people. I would argue that a good number of martial artists were first drawn to martial arts um, by watching a, a TV program, a film, that that, uh, that drew them into wanting to be a martial artist. They wanted to be like the action star that they were watching on the screen, the character in particular. You, you often hear it. One stage got quite boring to read a typical martial arts uh, interview in a martial arts magazine when you'd ask, when the interviewer, sorry, would ask, who was your influence? Who was your inspiration? To get into martial arts what got you in the first place and uh, at least 60 percent of the people being interviewed would say bruce lee and then after that it would be several other type of movie stars um, but very often it was bruce lee and you'll find with this podcast and now the second podcast which is a sequel to this my own essay on a particular trope that just grew out of this you'll find that a lot of it comes back down to bruce lee comes back down to the the little dragon we can't avoid it when it comes to martial arts movie tropes uh, lee either brought tropes that were being established in the martial arts movie genre and made them much larger for a mainstream audience, or many of the tropes that we see today are still drawn from Bruce Lee and quite specifically Enter the Dragon actually. So we are still seeing that several decades on which goes to show you just how tired a lot of these tropes really are now. As I've often said, some martial arts movies are so bad that they're good. They fall into that category, and a good number of them are are very well made movies, not particularly original, or they simply execute cliches in an interesting way. Um, after all, uh, nothing is new under the sun, except the very old, as the old adage goes. But there are a good number of tropes that can't really be changed much altered executed in a different way they just need to be packed away for a while or they need to be really really rethought in a way that makes them both more entertaining for for viewers and makes the martial arts movie genre more entertaining more appealing uh, and makes the art better the art of producing a martial arts movie i'm, I'm a great believer in art at all levels i don't subscribe to sort of the snobbish view that there's this type of low art that's just there just to feed the lowest common denominator and that thing. There's been some great examples of really, really uh, talented actors, directors, writers working on shoestring budgets, sometimes working for a rather exploitative piece, but still what they deliver is something really, really good and sometimes you get movies that are much better than they should be. And this kind of happens within the martial arts movie world, so better development of these tropes or their complete exclusion would make for a better viewing experience for everybody. Anyway, without rambling on too much, as you can see this is completely unscripted time around, we're going to move on to our first guest, and that is Ian Abernethy. Ian, if you're unaware, which I really doubt you are, is a bunkai Jutsu pioneer. He really did wonders for pragmatic karate. In many ways, I'd be fair to say he was the saviour of karate credibility in terms of self-defences. And I can say that because I'm not in the karate world, so being branded a heretic on that by definition anyway. So yes, I will say that when I first started reading Ian's articles, his interviews, and all the stuff that he had to say, even though I wasn't practicing karate, and I wasn't practicing, I was, I was practicing a traditional martial art, that's not true to say I wasn't practicing a traditional martial art, I was practicing uh, Songshan Shaolin Kung Fu at the time when I was reading Ian's stuff, and I later went on to uh, study Kan, which is a derivative of Hakaru Jiu-Jitsu, which in itself owes its roots to Daitaru Jiu-Jitsu, so I was in there with the traditional martial arts, but I was very much an eclectic modernist in my approach to martial arts, and obviously a convert of Jeff Thompson's school of pragmatic martial arts and self-protection Ian stuff was a breath of fresh air. I wasn't practicing karate. I had no intention of practicing karate, but everything that he was saying there just made perfect sense. Any martial artist who wanted to have some self-defense value and also wanted to be honest about the history of combative arts. This is what really Ian shone a light on for me. Fast forward several years, Ian appeared in two of my documentaries, become one of my best friends in the world of martial arts and one of my best friends in general, and still respect him um, hugely as a martial artist anyway and can objectively look at his work and still say, yep, yeah, this is really... He wrote several books. Karate's Grappling Matters was the first one. Um, one of my personal favorites was The Forgotten Throws of Karate taekwondo and boxing he also did several dvds as well ian teaches seminars all over the world and keeps going back as well so obviously everywhere he's teaching he's getting great results great feedback his podcast is excellent if if by some strange reason you've come to my podcast without first seeing ian's i highly recommend that you do go across to ian's and have a look at his stuff and have a listen to the great material that he is producing anyway ian's trope the one that he's chosen start off with martial arts movies in general he's um, not a fan to be honest I haven't been a fan of the genre for a while but I did go for a period when I was a fan of the genre it was not first a martial arts movie fan but when I got involved with things like performance I was more drawn to looking at the movies and I did go through my period when I did enjoy them both the old ones and the new ones and catching up but you know, eventually fell out of love with them and that's probably because of the formulaic way that so many of them were approached but anyway Ian, as much better job of that than me in explaining why and of course and he goes on to a trope which is often known as Chekhov's skill. Ian doesn't address it as that but that's what he gets to anyway. So I'll leave you with Ian.
1: So Jamie's asked me to talk about my least favourite martial arts movie cliché. Well the fact is I think all martial arts movies are clichéd. I don't really... Uh, enjoy them at all, because they all follow the same plot. The the bad guy, who's highly trained, does something to aggrieve the good guy. Uh, The good guy is powerless to stop them. But later on, through the secret technique, secret training method, uh, hidden wisdom from the master... Is now able to defeat them, albeit normally closely and with uh, relying on the secret, you know, killer move or whatever it happens to be. So it's, it's always the same plot. You know, this you emotionally invested in the main character, uh, main character is he's, he's badly treated and then comes back and gets his vengeance. You know, you've seen one martial arts movie, you've seen them all, you, you know how pretty much they're all going to end and how they're going to play out. And I think within that is, the, you know, my least favourite cliche is that general idea that the highly trained bad guy can be defeated by just knowing the trick. So, you know, Johnny has been training for a long time and Daniel is able to defeat him because he's learnt the crane kick, which you know can defend, you know? And you see with training methods too, so if you look at, like, Rocky IV, you know, Rocky gets badly aggrieved by Drago taking out Creed and then... Rocky trains by chopping logs and lifting rocks, you know, and Drago trains with cutting edge science. But nevertheless, he's uh, defeated by, by by Rocky's kind of back to basics training methods. You know, there's always something that they do that that marks about as different. You know, what chasing chickens or whatever it happens to be in the first one as well. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's the one, and I think the reason I don't like it, I think, is it's damaging for the public's perception of the martial arts, too, because they they assume it's trickery. You learn the trick. So, you know, what would you do if, you know, you've just got to learn the move, you know, you've just got to learn the secret move, and therefore, then you'll be invincible. Uh, and, you know, as those who have trained know, it takes a long time to develop basic competence, but the move is give this idea that no it doesn't you just learn to need to to learn the special move the one special move or you need to partake of the one special training method and then when you've done that you you 're good to go, and I think for some people it can create an unrealistic expectation in the minds of what martial arts training self defense training requires because they come sometimes expecting to learn the, the quickly acquired trick yeah so yeah that would that would be it for me that that would be it you know the the, the reliance on the the, the the secret method you know the dim mac in blood sport, and i can 't remember that what was it um uh, the 1980s movie where his hand started to glow when he fought sure enough I'm forgetting now you know what I mean but you know the one I mean yeah it's always that the, the, the secret move the, 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 the secret killer move or the secret training method which somehow circumnavigates the, uh, uh, the, the results of training f- consistently for a long period of time yeah that would be the one for me
0: Thank you, Ian. So, Chekhov's skill is a trope whereby the protagonist in the film comes up with a trick move, usually something that they've been training for a long time. It's a key ingredient in the Crytek Kid 1, it was the crane kick in the Crytek Kid 2, it was the drum technique in Karate Kid 3, it was a rather bizarre interpretation of the use of kata, where I think they translate it to being focusing technique of or, or some sort. Yeah, you get that in general, and I completely have sympathy for what Ian has a gripe with, in in this respect, uh, you get the special move. So, martial arts movies generally just need to be improved. We just need better storylines, and we can do that. There have been different times I've seen, and that's really what inspired me to do the podcast on the 90 martial arts movies, movies that tried to make a difference, tried to change the formula somewhat, or execute it in a different and fresh way. I love 1989's Best of the Best. I say that it's definitely far from a perfect movie. A lot of it is very cheesy now, looking back is that the fight scenes are incredibly unbalanced but it, it does have a far better balance of acting and martial arts for a film up to that stage probably uh, since a movie like Enter the Dragon with its mix of decent actors and a decent martial artist but still the storyline is up and down but there's a genuine desire and need to make things better so I did like 989's Night, Night, best of the best and I remember as a teenager recognising that need do something different with the martial arts movie it seemed to me like it was going to be a martial arts soap opera a martial arts straight drama that could be taken a bit more seriously when at that time the image of the martial arts movie was this is very broad low plot badly acted uh, low budget movie uh, and then best, the best just seemed to be our chance to make something that was going to strike out into the mainstream and and have some genuine respect i didn't get that really in the end but i just love the enthusiasm for that and, and to make a decent movie and i, I didn't acknowledge that at the time. But since then, there's been some good art house movies that tried to do something different with the martial arts genre. You know, Quentin Tarantino's two Kill Bill films are a great example of that. Um, admittedly, they use the chopsocky genre and the artistic vehicle, some much better driving it. Again, not perfect. I'm sure they've certainly got their critics. Maybe not Quentin Tarantino's greatest movies, but I, but again, it was a movie that was largely martial arts that appealed to an audience that wouldn't normally like martial arts movies, and that that was counts as a in my view. I always like genre films that can appeal to people that are not the usual followers of that genre. Uh, 2003's Beautiful Boxer, if you haven't seen that, that really is a, a good drama. It's uh, the story of Nong Toom, who I had the privilege of uh, briefly meeting when I was on my honeymoon, actually back in 2007. Nong Toom, trans woman, Thai boxer who continued to fight in the men's division and had an incredible success in Muay Thai throughout her career. And Beautiful Boxer is a really well executed movie. It's well worth watching. 2002's Smashing Machine is a documentary, a martial arts documentary, so I appreciate I'm restructuring things here. But then again, it really is focus on mixed martial arts. On. It says early, mixed martial arts, but it's actually mixed martial arts almost a decade on, that sort of mid-rule change period, sort of before the Dana White era. It concerns Mark Kerr's career, and I really recommend that. I mean, the drama is definitely there. It it is a very, very good documentary. Moving back to my guest who was presenting this part, I'm looking at the critique of the martial arts movie genre in general, and specifically Chekhov's skill, the special move, special technique, was Ian Abernethy. Um, Please go to Ian Abernethy.com. that's ian that's just spelt uh, the scottish way i-a-i-n abernethy a-b-e-r-n-e-t-h-y dot com so that's ianabernethy.com it'll be in the show notes anyway please buy ian books uh, have a check out of his seminars if, um, or if you are a karate practitioner or even a traditional martial arts practitioner i highly recommend that you Book Ian to uh, inject his particular brand of pragmatism and fantastic insight into classical martial arts karate in particular. Our next guest is Gretchen Carlson from Martial Journeys of Madison. Now Gretchen, very interesting individual. She her ambition is to visit all 50 states of her home United States and uh, and train there. She's doing that as part of a tra- charity project and it's an ongoing project and it's become Marshall journey has become the name of her school. She teaches Kangdukwon Taekwondo of which she is a fourth degree black belt and also a two-time silver medalist on the national level. She's taught martial arts since 2007. Gretchen is a very entertaining podcaster and blogger. She is a very talented writer with a superb insight and a lot of knowledge on the, the areas that she, that she studies. She's very shrewd at identifying certain behaviours in martial arts subculture, uh, something that we, we do need to see a lot more of. And of course having an academic background in science that I'm deeply envious of, she can add that element too. Her podcasts are always a joy to listen to. You start off with a subject that sounds really interesting and you wonder whether she's going to touch upon something else or you feel like you should write in or say something, saying, oh, oh but did you know this? And she covers it. Gretchen, Marshall Journey's podcast is a must-listen to. She is dealing with implausible costumes. Rather than me rambling on, I'll let Gretchen explain it to you.
2: Hello, Jamie and Jamie's listeners. When Jamie asked me about cringeworthy movie tropes that make fight scenes worse, my initial response was basically, Well, hypersexualized women's costuming comes to mind, but that's not really my kind of topic. But he talked me into it, and here we are. Now I'm on the Club Chimera podcast, and I feel at least 10% cooler because of it. So this is a trope that certainly isn't limited to movies. In an effort to sell more copies of pretty much any visual media, characters, both male and female, are often made as attractive as possible. And there's more than one way to be attractive, so hopefully the artistic direction serves the story. But when it comes to action scenes, you can get some pretty cringeworthy results when realism takes a back seat to making female characters look as alluring as possible. At the risk of sounding like a girly girl, let's talk about shoes. It's one thing to have a character end up in a fight when they weren't expecting one. But no one would ever choose to fight in high heels. I have a lot of respect for men who teach women's self-defense classes and have actually tried using their techniques in high heels before recommending one course of action or another to their high-heel-wearing students. Some of you guys do that, right? Right? Because it's not like the movies. You're not going to run gracefully in high heels. Even walking in high heels takes a little practice if you don't want to move like a drunk toddler. Running, jumping, kicking, pretty much any movement is going to be awkward at best. So when a character's battle armor includes high heels, it kind of begs the question, how vain or garden variety stupid do you have to be to choose that kind of disadvantage for yourself when you know you're going into battle? But these characters aren't otherwise portrayed as vain or stupid. We're supposed to accept that this capable, intelligent, experienced fighter from a movie, comic, or video game just prefers a debilitating wardrobe when her life is on the line. Now, the natural criticism to this is, oh, this is a scene with dragons, vampires, laser swords, and people phasing through walls, and you're complaining that the armor isn't realistic? Well, no, I'm not. I'm arguing that the armor in that scene is jarringly inconsistent. J.R.R. Tolkien explained this far better than I ever could in his essay on fairy stories. He said, Children are capable, of course, of literary belief when the story maker's art is good enough to produce it. That state of mind has been called willing suspension of disbelief. But this does not seem to me a good description of what happens. What really happens is that the story maker proves a successful sub creator. He makes a secondary world which your mind can enter. Inside it, what he relates is true. It accords with the laws of that world. You therefore believe while you are, as it were, inside. The moment disbelief arises, the spell is broken. The magic, or rather art, has failed. You are then out in the primary world again, looking at the little abortive secondary world from the outside. If you are obliged by kindliness or circumstance to stay, then disbelief must be suspended or stifled. Otherwise, listening and looking would become intolerable. But this suspension of disbelief is a substitute for the genuine thing, a subterfuge we use when condescending to games or make believe, or when trying, more or less willingly, to find what virtue we can in the work of an art that has for us failed. So it's not about realism, it's about internal consistency. If the story establishes that this is a world in which dragons are real but Starbucks isn't, you can expect your latte to get some laughs. You need your willful suspension of disbelief, not because dragons are more realistic than coffee, but because the coffee is jarringly inconsistent. When a female character makes a wardrobe choice that gives her an obvious disadvantage but makes her more attractive, that suggests an extreme level of vanity or incompetence. Which is fine if the character has been established as being exceptionally vain or incompetent. But that's usually not the case. Instead, as Tolkien put it, the spell is broken and the art has failed. And this is certainly not limited to high heels. Also on the topic of battle armor, let's talk about plate mail. Normally, a sheet of metal across your torso is a good thing. If you think you might get poked in the chest with something sharp and pointy. But you can make that sheet of metal even better if you shape it right. That's why armor is shaped the way that it is. As it's a single convex surface to deflect any incoming thrusts harmlessly to one side or the other. This is a good thing no matter the shape of the chest underneath, because no matter who you are, driving a piece of metal into your heart, lung, various veins or arteries, and so forth, that tends to be Pretty bad for your longevity, but the armor on female characters often hugs right against the skin, with fully formed metal cleavage. Now, an incoming strike, rather than being deflected to the side of her body, is deflected to the center of her torso. Even if the armor can withstand that kind of repeated abuse, it's still helping her enemies land strikes in the best possible place to knock her off balance to say nothing of the increased chances that she'll have some damage underneath that spot. And that's assuming the armor doesn't have a neckline of a bathing suit or a bra. I don't know about you, but if I thought there was a decent chance that someone was going to try to stab me, I would want my heart and neck to have a little more protection than the awesome power of my cuteness. In a similar vein, female characters are prone to taking actions that have more tactically sound alternatives for the sake of hypersexualizing her. Awkwardly high kicks where a punch would make more sense is especially common in comics and video games, but you see it in movies, too. File that one right next to the Brokeback, a phenomenon in drawings where female characters are contorted into awkward if not outright impossible positions for the sake of including her chest and her butt in the same picture. Then you've got the overused female action hero attack, where she leaps in, wraps her legs around someone's neck, and then does her actual attack to kill or subdue the baddie. I sometimes try to imagine an Arnold Schwarzenegger character doing that, and it usually ends in a fit of giggles. Now, the great thing about fiction, speculative fiction, science fiction, and fantasy is that it gives us a break from reality. But if that fiction isn't internally consistent, and our immersion in the world is broken, we're right back in what Tolkien calls the primary world. It doesn't make for a good story experience, in my opinion. And certainly this has gotten better in recent years. It's especially noticeable in movies inspired by comic books, where the same characters have been portrayed again and again over the course of decades. Wonder Woman hasn't worn heels since 1982. Compare practically any female character from the Marvel Cinematic Universe against her comic book predecessors, and the costuming tends to be a lot more utilitarian. Partly that may be due to the fact that real people have to act and perform stunts in these costumes, whereas before the drawing would allow a lot more creative license, but mostly I think it's due to moviegoers appreciating a more internally consistent story and character. That's all I've got for fight scenes being ruined by hypersexualizing female characters. Big thanks to Jamie for inviting me onto one of my favorite podcasts in the world. And I can't wait to hear everyone else's contributions.
0: Thank you Gretchen. The Wonder Woman feature film might not be a martial arts film, but it's often been cited as a great recruitment movie for getting girls into martial arts. A key difference fans noticed between Wonder Woman and the film that followed it, Justice League, was the way that the Amazon characters were dressed. In Wonder Woman, their armoured costumes were a good balance of aesthetic fantasy and pragmatism. In Justice League, they were just your typical sexualized fare that Gretchen was discussing. The fans noticed and it was representative of the film's many flaws in comparison to the previous year's movie. That was the first thing that came to mind when I listened to Gretchen's piece. The next thing that came to mind was Stephen King's metaphor for describing the art of creating effective fantasy fiction. Stephen King said it was all in the sewing. So there you go, there's your costume metaphor for you. It's all to do with sewing the cloth of reality with the cloth of fantasy and good seamstress doesn't show you where they've done the sewing, so you can't see the seams, therefore you you see a good garment, you see a good costume. In the same respect, when you are creating a fantasy, the viewer shouldn't realise the point when they've just crossed over from the realm of reality, from accepted reality where the suspension of disbelief is far less, into the absurd supernatural world, or the exaggerated world of the genre that they're watching, of the film they're watching, or even the book that they're reading. As I said, Gretchen's podcast is a very entertaining and educational show. I really recommend it for all those who are interested in the critical side of martial arts. When a genuine insight, uh, what I like a lot about Gretchen's shows is not only just the topic and the content in general, it's her willingness to tackle awkward subjects, often subjects that are very important in the martial arts world and really need to be discussed. Give it a listen. to the com is the website, and the podcast is Martial Journey. We move on to our next martial movie trope. Uh, this is one that I picked, but uh, I didn't feel qualified to discuss it at any length. First aid's an important part of any martial arts trainer's uh, education. I think uh, all martial arts teachers should have an up-to-date first aid certificate, they should have a basic knowledge of first aid and should be pursuing specific first aid for the areas that they're covering. I think it's a vital component of self-protection teaching and it's a very important part of any sort of physical training. But with that in mind, I'm not a paramedic. I'm not a nurse. I'm not uh, medically trained to deal with emergency situations. However, my good friend Peter Jones, the founder of Cajun Roo, certainly does have the qualifications and experience. Peter is a trained emergency nurse practitioner and an advanced nurse practitioner. He has decades worth of experience in the field and is the perfect person to discuss a trope known as lodge blade recycling. Lodge blade recycling is when a person is in a film, is stabbed, they then pull the foreign object out of the wound and use it as a weapon themselves. And of course it's not just the lodge blade recycling, it's quite the extreme version of it, but in general, you see in any amount of action films, a person getting stabbed, they get an arrow in them, they get a sword in them, they get a knife in them. And if it doesn't kill them, if it's not shown to be fatal, their general default position is to pull that blade out and continue on. And sometimes showing only a bit of mild discomfort. And sometimes you get a bit of a, a bit of limping here and there, which is quickly forgotten about. Shows like The Blacklist were classics for doing that, I, I used to remember. Uh, but you see it in an awful lot of period epics, particularly medieval ones with arrows and that. Anyway, Peter goes into Detail about that, and I'll discuss more about Peter after listening to his excellent piece here on the removal of
3: foreign objects or foreign bodies. I've been asked to discuss the television and movie trope of a character pulling a foreign object from their body in order to continue the fight. So, first, a little about me. I'm a martial artist of some 29 years of experience, multiple band grades, and a few accolades. I train in all aspects of martial arts, be it um, sport, um, self-protection and um, cultural appreciation. My specialism these days is pragmatism. By profession, I'm an emergency nurse practitioner and I'm an advanced nurse practitioner. So I specialise in the care of people with injuries and I've got extended skills such as prescribing that puts me on a par with a hospital middle grade doctor. So. Foreign objects, or foreign bodies, different words, same thing, basically mean anything in the body that is foreign to the body, so it doesn't belong there. Now, that excludes food, drink, medication, other such such chemicals, you know, supposed to be able to eat and drink. But piercings, such as ear piercings, are foreign bodies. Now, some foreign bodies are good things, if you think, as examples, hip replacements, or pacemakers, or contraceptive implants, but those are not the point of this discussion. So harmful foreign bodies could be as innocuous as a splinter in the finger or a child putting Lego up their nose. Both of these are very common and they do need addressing in order to relieve discomfort and prevent infection. And some people get foreign bodies like treading on glass and never actually discover it until years later when they get an incidental x-ray. So it's not always a problem. At the other end of the scale is if you think about something like impalement through the body, you know, so a, a spear... I used to work in a hospital near a furniture factory and over the years I've removed several nails that have been driven through a finger or hand in a moment of carelessness. I've also removed fish hooks from various body parts and even teeth from hands. Why teeth? Okay, well this is what we call the fight bite. If you consider that if I were to punch you square in the mouth and chip off some teeth, then it is quite conceivable that the fragments of teeth could end up in my hand. That's a fight bite. And that's a foreign body in my hand. And that would need removing because of the high risk of infection. And we're going to come back to that later. If you think about being shot, therefore, a bullet in the body would be a foreign body. To give an example of this trope, in the 1991 film Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, the T-800 Terminator, is impaled through the body by the rival T-1000 Terminator, who's played by Robert Patrick. This impalement goes through his body and secures him down to a steel gantry and apparently deactivates him and, and the T-1000 takes off, off after Sarah and John Connor. A few minutes later, the T-800 comes back online, pulls a metal bar downwards out of his body and through the gantry floor and the rest is movie history. The Terminators aren't, of course, human, but they're robots. However, there are numerous examples of this sort of thing in television, film and literature. Consider uh, arrows through the hand where the hero pulls it out of the hand, and then uses the uh, arrow against the attacker. So is this actually possible? Would it work, and what would be the after-effects? In terms of if it's possible, well, this would depend on many things. What exactly is the foreign body? Whereabouts in the body is it? How strong is the victim? What angle can they get on the object? What leverage do they have? Is the foreign object protruding? With a wound, you're going to get bleeding to some degree, greater or lesser. Blood is slick, so actually gripping the foreign body where your hand or the foreign body are covered in blood is going to be very, very difficult. Uh, In the example of the furniture nail driven through the hands, if you think about putting a a nail gun against your hand and setting it off, then um, that's not kind of dissimilar to the sort of trope we're talking about here. And it actually takes a lot of strength to remove these things. When we do it... Um, in the emergency care setting, the patient would have had analgesia. We will um, set up the the position in an ideal way. I will secure their left hand with my left, or sorry, I'll secure their hand with my left hand because I am right hand dominant. And then I will use my dominant hand and a, a sturdy pair of clean pliers to pull out the foreign object, ideally in one smooth movement. It does take quite a bit of force to do it. That said. My colleagues and I will all tell you that actually it's it's uh, a rewarding thing to do and is a highlight of what we do. So it's true that the human body will try to retain foreign bodies. This is why combat knives have blood channels, so-called blood channels on the blades. They allow air in when the knife goes into the body and they allow the flow of blood out so as to make the knife easier to retrieve from the victim. This is assuming that we're just talking about soft tissues and the foreign body isn't wedged in uh, body parts such as in bones like the hand forearm or ribs which brings us into another consideration that of where the foreign body is lodged is it just in soft tissues or is it wedged in bone how deep is the foreign body and what's its shape might there be a curvature to it or might there be a barb we always x-ray before we remove foreign bodies because we need to know where it is what angle it's at and what shape it is in the example of fish hooks we commonly push them right through and create a new wound to retrieve them because barbs mean they can't be pulled back. All of this doesn't account for pain. Removal of foreign objects is excruciating. There are reasons we use nerve blocks, um, entonoxy, laughing gas, or general anaesthetic. I would suggest that in extreme cases, such as limbs being punctured right through, then the victim would probably lose consciousness due to the pain. It's also true that when blood vessels are penetrated, the foreign body might form an effective and life-saving seal. Emphasis here on the might. This does indeed happen, but it's not guaranteed. This is why the first aid advice of leaving foreign bodies in place is correct. Instead, we should dress around them and let the experts examine the wound in the foreign body. Unless the location of the foreign body is known for certain and is in shallow, soft tissues then surgical removal is usually done in theatre where the wound can be explored and blood vessels tied. Hypothetically, therefore, the Hollywood hero pulling the metal bar from their body may well bleed to death rapidly. Again, it's dependent on so many factors. So what are the after effects? There can be internal damage, such as muscle being torn or blood vessels being ruptured. Where structures are damaged, you have to question the effect on the body. It's interesting that the hero looks in agony, yet seems to possess all of their normal strength. Severing muscle fibres will reduce the function of that body part, if not render it unusable. So if you were to tear through the biceps muscle, you're going to be unable to bend your arm with any strength. If you think about the abdomen, every move that you make involves the abdominal muscles to some degree. So every movement would be impeded and would be agony. Now if ever you've had um, your appendix whipped out, for example you probably felt afterwards pretty vulnerable and useless because you you just can't do a whole lot and certainly we recommend people who've had abdominal surgery not to go lifting anything other than very light objects. This is true even with keyhole surgery because although externally there are small wounds, internally there can still be quite a bit of damage. There would almost certainly be infection from contamination from the object and this could result in life-threatening sepsis unless it's properly, proactively treated, such as by antibiotics and um, extensive washout. These infections can include things like tetanus, which is harboured in soil and manure. I'm led to believe by ninjutsu practitioners that the traditional poison that was on the tip of the shuriken, if you think throwing stars, was animal excrement, which is dog shit, because There was no vaccination and no treatment for tetanus, so if you got your skin penetrated by a thrown shuriken, that was highly likely to result in a painful prolonged death. Now, I can't substantiate that that is all correct, but it does sound very reasonable to me. So there you go. I wouldn't say the trope is impossible, but I would say the possibility of it is highly dependent on a multitude of factors, and therefore success would be like throwing dice. Even if it was successful, it doesn't account for the after-effects
0: thank you peter for your particular insight expertise into this movie trope which has uh, been annoyance of mine ever since i attended a first aid course many people who watch uh, action movies or dramas or any dramatic scene where a foreign object will be involved uh, where somebody will be stabbed impaled in some shape or form and they recover remarkably fast or they handle uh, the removal of the object as a default response uh, will probably their suspension of disbelief somewhat affected it. and for this reason I think this trope could be re-looked at shall we say it doesn't necessarily need to be binned together and Peter showed some exceptions to the rule and I love the fact that he's come into it from a, a scientific and experienced background where uh, he says that it all depends on the nature of the injury in particular but in general the response to someone getting stabbed in a film is not very realistic and again I think we can do a lot better with that in mind I think a lot of viewers would would agree with that. Peter's new book is available now. That's Ninja Nurse, The Essential Guide to Injury Management in Martial Arts by Peter Jones. I uh, can't emphasize enough the importance of this book and also how excited I was when Peter first contacted me about creating this book. Peter has filled a huge gap in the martial arts uh, literary world. We've got millions of books on how to do and everyone's opinion on how martial arts should be performed and plenty on the history but of all the areas handling injuries is one that is generally touched upon at best in a good martial arts training manual it's an inevitable part of training and it comes in all areas it's fundamental to self-protection training i would argue that it's a very very important part of the post-fight stage of self-defense self-protection training It's obviously a very important part of the day-to-day running of a martial arts club or school or anyone who's teaching martial arts, and Peter's book couldn't be more comprehensive it covers everything he addresses questions that I hadn't even thought of and certainly all the questions that I have about the management of injuries in martial arts it is one of those books that just needs to be in every martial arts teacher's library and any serious martial arts student's library so that's Ninja Nurse available both as an e-book and as a paperback off Amazon and any good book retailer that you find online it's also available as a Kindle Peter's website once again is dot CajunRu.com. That's K-A-J-U-E-N-R-Y-U.com. This brings us on to interval time. So please listen to this message from me. Hello, this is Jamie Club from the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. And I'm here to quickly talk about my upcoming Vagabond Warriors Martial Arts Cross Training Workshops this summer. These three-hour intensive training sessions will cover Club Chimera's approach to cross-training. Each workshop will focus on a certain martial art discipline or concept, and then we will train different ways to use it to add to, replace, complement or enhance techniques from other martial arts as they best suit you. We will be working primarily towards the incorporation of martial arts into self-defense or mixed martial arts, which allows quite a broad area to work. I will be limiting the number of students, so that we have a more focused approach on training specific areas. These workshops were originally designed for my private clients as a means for meeting up, training with one another, and setting personal goals. But I've opened it up to anyone who would like to attend, allowing other martial artists who are interested in my work or live too far afield to join us. We'd be delighted to have you all involved. The venue is suitably quiet and secluded in the Cotswold countryside in over Norton, Oxfordshire. The starting age for training is 15 years. But if we do have a strong interest for those under that age, I'll consider opening up a junior section. The first workshop will be on the 28th of July 2019, and the second one will be on the 25th of August 2019. So I'll need to hear from you soon to secure your place. Please contact me using the contact page on the website clubchimera.com. That is C-L-U-B-B-C-H-I-M-E-R-A dot com. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you soon. Hello and welcome back to this special bumper edition of the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast, discussing martial arts movie tropes, in particular those that need to be retired. We move on to Sensei Ando's contribution to this podcast. Sensei Ando, that's Ando Muerza, claims Taekwondo and Kung Fu San tzu as his main background arts, but has a huge amount of experience properly cross training in various disciplines he's a prolific podcaster and covers a multitude of inspiring topics he offers up two martial movie tropes so we're getting a two for the price of one here. Interestingly he's chosen two very different tropes one of which is highly unusual yet is a fair call and the second one is one that we will see uh, repeated again by my final guest on the show which shows that it really does need to be a retired trope. When you listen to the first one I bet you won't be able to watch a martial arts movie at least not one from the 70s 80s a lot of the ones produced by Hong Kong action cinema the same way again and you'll be keeping an eye out for it as well the second trope is interesting not just because it is a particularly unpopular trope uh, showing that it really does need to be retired but also because it is one that does occur in reality it is part of fight behavior it's certainly a part of social fight behavior anyway you'll see it in a few self-protection books and i always mention it as part of my self-protection courses it is a typical fight behavior but uh, just because it is there um, it's got an annoying place in a lot of fight scenes which although it doesn't impact on suspension of disbelief which is generally the problem with all the tropes that have been mentioned in this particular show this one is just it's quite lazy in getting the audience excited about the fight that is about to follow So with all that being said, I'll hand you over to Sensei Ando.
4: Hey, how's it going, Jamie? Greetings from the USA to you and the tough, intelligent, and most likely good-looking audience of the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. Okay, fight scenes. I love them. But there are a couple of cliches I never, ever want to see again. I couldn't narrow it down to just one, so I'm going to give you two. The first one annoys me, but the second one, at this point, offends me. So let me get to it. Number one, this is what annoys me. I call it flower pants. I don't mean garden flowers. I mean baking flour. You'll see this when, uh, in the middle of a fight scene, a guy throws a kick up at the head. Either it hits or it's blocked, it doesn't matter, and suddenly there's this puff of dust. I don't know if these guys are using dirt or chalk or baking flour, but there it is. A big puff of smoke. Um, The first time I ever saw that, I think was in a Jackie Chan film. uh, And I forgive him. St. Jackie can do whatever the heck he wants. (laughs) I would call him the innovator. But uh, you can see this now. It could be the middle of a bank. Everyone could be wearing a suit It could be a high-tech office with computers and the floors and the walls. Everything is pristine and clean. doesn't matter. As soon as the kicks start flying, poof, 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 there's these clouds everywhere. I mean, it's bad enough that when people get punched in the face, some of these movies have these big loaded up cheeks uh, and they spit out this (laughs) enormous amount of red corn syrup. But if you're adding flour to your pants, I have to ask, is this a fight scene or a baking show. It's too much. I prefer my fight scenes to be gluten-free. So if there's a petition I can sign to hand out to fight choreographers and directors uh, to eliminate flower pants, I would sign it. And I encourage everyone listening to sign it too. All right. Cliche number two. That would be the moment when the hero takes a couple of hits. He stumbles back. He regains his composure and then he looks up, extends his arm, palm up, and then curls up his fingers, waving the other person over like, come on, come over here. (sighs) The first time I saw that, I think it was Bruce Lee. So no problem there. St. Bruce, I consider that his move. But since then, maybe I'm wrong. I didn't do deep research on this, but it feels to me like I've seen that move in The Matrix. I think I've seen Cynthia Rothrock do that move. I even think I saw it in a Shrek movie. (laughs) It's everywhere. It's just considered as normal as a punch or a kick. Oh yeah, the hero's supposed to be cocky and wave the bad guy over. But how is that a great idea? The hero is smug, cocky, overconfident. It not only looks like they want to fight, it looks like they like to fight. To me, that's just not a great image anyway for the hero to have. The bad guy, maybe, but not the hero. And of course, the other problem here that offends me is it's just stealing. It's straight up stealing. Okay, punches and kicks, I understand. Everyone's throwing the same punches and kicks for the most part. But there's an art to that. You give two people the exact same fight choreography, it's going to look different because there's personality behind that. There's something going on that makes it unique. But that hand wave move... That's just an attitude, and everybody does it exactly the same way, and it's clearly copying somebody else. I don't know how any self-respecting fight choreographer or director could come to work that day and go, Hey, I got an idea. Let's do that move as if they made it up. It's just straight up stealing. It's copying. So creatively, it's offensive. And as an audience member, I've seen it. It's offensive. As a martial arts teacher uh, trying to promote good character, I think it's offensive. I just hate it. It doesn't fit into the world that I want to live in. The other little aspect that vexes me here is that Bruce earned it. Part of his whole shtick was to be cocky and smug and have that attitude that he's better than everybody. But he earned that right. He could sell it because love him or hate him, clearly he was a hard worker. He did put his hours in. So if he wants to be cocky, yeah, so be it. But when you're putting up these actors and actresses who you know, God love them. they They put in a couple of months of training to help sell those punches and kicks. And I'm not saying they didn't work hard. But nobody's a good enough actor to be smug about what they're doing or to sell me the idea that they're so awesome they could be cocky in a fight scene. It just rings false every time I see it. And even if it's done well, I still don't think it's a great move. So that one straight up offends me. (laughs) I don't want to see that ever again. All right. So in the spirit of movie reviews, to sum this up, I'm giving a thumbs down for flower pants. Let's keep our fight scenes gluten-free, people. And I'm going to give one finger up, the middle finger, for the come over here hand wave. I don't ever want to see that again. Thanks for letting me get that off my chest, sir. I feel a lot better now. Uh, Thanks again for having me on. Next time, the pie's on me. Thank
0: you Ando for your double bill. I noticed that your shrewdly observed flower pants bargain basement SFX trope was very common in Hong Kong action cinemas of the 1970s and 80s. I'm not sure where it first appeared, but it certainly was taken on by a huge number of movies and became quite a defining feature of the action scenes like undercranking and slow motion. It it needs to be confined to the history of martial arts cinema. It doesn't do anything really now to emphasize an action scene. Certainly We've improved the sound effects, um, and there isn't so much of the impact sound effects that you used to see in a lot of movies of those particular eras, and I think the flower pants needs to be sent away as well. We don't need to see any more of that. Check out SenseiAndo.com and his Fight for a Happy Life podcast. There are some great episodes on there. Walk Like a Warrior episode was one of my particular favourites. It made me think of the way I try to drill down basic behaviours and attitude in students before we add on any techniques, tactics and strategies. There's some great advice there on the various episodes. Uh, One show in particular discusses... uh, a mental approach to combat uh, whether you're looking at competition or whether you're looking at self defense and he makes a very good point about uh, facing a cold shower if you can't face a cold shower then how can you hope to face a combative situation so there's lots of little life hacks i think is the term these days uh, which sensei ando introduces into his podcast which I-, I love it so it's a regular feature of, of his work it's, it makes for very entertaining episodes and stuff that you can immediately apply to your training I'll give it that, that little edge, that little bit extra. I haven't addressed the second trope here because Chris Jones is about to do it now. Chris Jones from chrisjones.moonfruit.com is a very forward thinking martial artist. If there ever was a guy who was going to get martial artists to park their political differences and work together, Chris Jones is your man. He runs a full time martial arts academy has an online kicking program that uh, is highly recommended I'm always seeing highlights from that on my social media and Chris is has got a very astute observation on kicking, which can be useful for improving both competition and martial arts performance. He has a regular podcast, a very very regular show, has uh, plenty of guests on it, and Chris delivers the show in a very entertaining and very personable manner. His involvement in martial arts movies was what inspired me to ask him for a contribution. Having spent so much time working on and in-fight scenes, I was very interested to hear what Chris felt about the most overplayed of tropes. Hi there, Jamie. It's Chris Jones
5: here from kickbackpodcast.com. Okay, so, martial arts movie cliches. Um, Well, There's actually quite a few, but there's two main ones that really get on my nerves. Uh, The first one is when... The, the beginning of a fight scene uh, when it's quite clear that they're struggling for a way to sort of initiate the fight um, so let's say you have fighter 1 and fighter 2 and fighter 1 will extend his arm open up his hand and give a little finger wave gesture to sort of antagonise the other person into fighting I absolutely hate that okay, it's been done to death you, you can see it through the decades so many times with with anything modern whether it's a short film or, you know, God forbid, an actual sort of Hollywood release. If I see somebody do that, that's it, I'm done. I'm not interested anymore because it's just so, so lazy, so lazy. There are so so many better ways of instigating starting off the fight than sticking out your arm and sort of finger gesturing that the other guy to or lady to sort of move towards you to initiate so so lazy um the other one is uh when you know especially in sort of an open area when you you know again we'll say there's two fighters and you know they'll just randomly uh, at some point and this was a big thing in the 90s they'll just start doing masses of spinning kicks one after the other so fighter one spin kick fighter two spin kick fighter one spin kick fighter two spin kick and they're making absolutely no effort uh to to get to get close to each other to you know it's just let's just fill the frame with loads of spinning kicks because they look cool um but yeah they're they're my two annoyances shall we say um again there are i could i could probably provide you with about 50 uh, but I'm, I'm just really picky like that but for me uh when i see a fight scene or if i'm working on something and i see those two i'm just like oh please let's not do this um so yeah hope that helps
0: so there you have it finger beckoning is a sure sign in a action scene that the fight scene is going to be total rubbish Well, at least it gives you an indication that those involved in the action direction of the particular fight scene haven't put a lot of thought into making the drama particularly interesting or different. So please, less of the finger beckoning when it comes to martial arts fight scenes please check out kickback chris Jones's podcast as i said it's a very regular show it covers a broad range of topics chris is always actively involved in different martial arts events around the uk and he's a hell of a lot more sociable than i am and he's again uh, like uh, like since he and uh, he's got a very personable manner in his delivery and execution and his shows are always a joy to listen to and he has uh, a wide range of guests on there too lots of different areas in the martial arts world that he's always keen to address and chris is openness is definitely something that uh, a lot of us in the martial arts world can learn from he has a lot of excellent online output Uh, he's always posting up new videos on uh, various training drills and training exercises uh, in very much in alignment with his excellent online course on to improve kicking so if you'd like to improve the dexterity of your kicking techniques i can heartily recommend chris's excellent online course also don't forget to go back to his main website which is chris jones Dot, moonfruit.com. That's dot moonfruit dot com that C H R I S J O N E S dot M double O N F R U I T dot com Again it will be in the show notes for this programme next episode is going to be dedicated to a trope that made me numb to a lot of martial arts movies so we've already talked about ian's general displeasure with the martial arts movie genre and what puts him off the movies so i can weather a lot of the tired cliches tropes are often what make a genre movie after all Uh, if you will pardon me for sounding like a snob, and often how they are executed is what can make a good film. However, I am with all of my excellent guests on this particular show. Special moves are predictable and silly. They undermine other themes like strategy. Costumers need to work better on an aesthetic that doesn't insult the viewer's agreement to suspend disbelief. Uh, Can we change the default setting for being stabbed in a movie from simply pulling the object out? And please, no more dusty martial arts fighters unless the fight takes place in a bakery or a brickyard. And finally, I don't think any more needs to be said about finger beckoning before a fight scene, other than it's not big or clever. Next episode, I'm sharing the show with my good friend and fellow martial arts teacher, Ron Goen, and I discover I've been mispronouncing his name for years. Ron will tackle two tropes. One is more of a subcultural cliché that should have been left in fiction. The other is a close relation to my all-time least favourite martial arts movie trope, Mary Sue Jutsu. Just before I go, I'd like to thank all my guests on this show. That's Ian Abernethy, Gretchen Carlson, Peter Jones, Andu Mawaza, and Chris Jones. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for downloading this extra edition of the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share an online review and rating via social media and or your preferred online sharing platform. For more information on Club Chimera martial arts, please check out clubchimera.com and also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe to our regular podcast show. Thanks for listening.